0: Uh, our scripture reader today is uh, David Wright, and he will be reading John 1, 1 through 14. Uh, come on up, David. And in honor of God's word, uh, please stand.
1: Listen and as I read. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name,
0: Um, so we're, we're starting a series uh, today, a four, four-week series called Presence. And um, uh, the, the, ch- the church calendar, which our church has been uh, kind of aligning itself with uh, more and more over the last few years, uh, next Sunday is a Sunday called Ascension Sunday. Uh, the Sunday after that, June 5th, is Pentecost Sunday. And the Sunday after that, June 12th, is Trinity Sunday. And so over these next three weeks, we'll be looking at the Ascension uh, at Pentecost and at um, the Trinity. And if you don't know what those words are, it's a good, good reason to come back and uh, join us for the series. Uh, but uh, we're adding a, front, a, a sermon on the front end, a, f- a, fourth, a fourth part to this, to this uh, trilogy. And, uh, and it's, it's the incarnation. And uh, the, the, the term incarnation, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that uh, here in, in, just, in just a moment. But the goal of this series is to see the links that God has gone to to recreate a world. Where his presence is fully experienced by you, by me, by, by everybody. Where his presence is, is fully experienced. You know, Exodus 33 uh, is a pretty powerful chapter of the Bible. Uh, it's a, a chapter that's relatively early in the Israel story. Uh, it's the, the early days of, of the nation of Israel. And uh, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, I mean, that's 33 chapters into the book of Ac- Exodus. Uh, but it has not been pretty. Uh, there has been some powerful action by, by God on behalf of the people of Israel. Uh, but the people of Israel are a mess. I mean, it's, it's, it's a train wreck. They, they are, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's been rough. And, and Moses, who was their leader, knows. I mean, he knows how rough it has been. Um, and to be honest, when you get to chapter 33, uh, the people had just built this golden calf And uh, God's meeting with Moses and the people are down, you know, God is on, Moses is on the mountain and the people are down uh, on the, on the, in the valley and they, they make their own idol. They make their own thing to worship. And uh, it's, it's a pretty big uh, uh, failure. And so in Exodus 33, it's all the aftermath of this activity of the people of Israel of, of picking their own idol, of choosing their own thing to worship. And, um, and, and, you know, it's, it seems like God's ready to wipe them all out. It, it seems like that's what God seems. It seems like he's, he's just he talks about their arrogance. He calls them a stiff-necked people. Uh, the, the pride and the arrogance it would take to, to, to reject a God who had been providing for them the way that God had been providing for them. And uh, the people of Israel are just, you know, putting it all on display right there in Exodus 32. So by Exodus 33, it's, it's really bad. But you know what, what, what the Bible says? It says that Moses... Uh, who, who, he talked to God like a man talks to his friend. That's what it says in Exodus thirty-three fifteen or uh, thirty-three eleven. That Moses talked to God like a man talks to his friend. That's pretty incredible. And what Moses says to God is this: If you don't come with us, then don't take us out of here. If you're not going to be with us, then then let's just just leave us here to die. Because what he actually says in Exodus 33, 15 is this. If your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. It, it, what he's saying is we're in the middle of the desert. We, we don't have food and we don't have water. We don't have shelter. We don't have at home. We're, we're, a, we're a, a mobile people here. And he's actually saying to God, if you're not going to come with us, then just leave us in the desert to die. Just, just leave us here. There's no point of trying to make this work. If you're not with us, there's no point to living if you're not with us. Now, you might not say that. You might look at your life and be like, you know, I don't know. I mean, God's a, a, a thing I think about sometimes, but He's not, it's not like my purpose for living. It's not my reason for living. I don't think I would ever say what Moses said. If, if you're not with me, then just leave, like, like, let me die. I think you might, you know, some of us might say, ah, I, I think about God on Sundays. I think about him sometimes throughout the week, but I wouldn't say, like, if he's not with me, then I should just die. You know, why why does Moses say that? Well, I think it's because he had met with God. And he had met with God more intimately than anybody on earth at that point in time. Over the course of Moses' life, just actually in the book of Exodus, Moses meets with God three different times that we know of. He has this interaction with God in, in the early part of, of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, the, the burning bush where God meets, meets Moses in the middle of a desert and calls Moses to the work of, of uh, being his mouthpiece, going to yeah, his spokesman, going to Egypt and setting his people free. Then in, in a large chunk of Exodus, Moses is on a mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, and he is meeting with God. And there's thunder and lightning and clouds and the earth, the ground seems to be rumbling and all, all kinds of dynamics at play. As God meets with Moses on the mountain to give Moses his, his word. And then in Exodus 33, Moses goes into what is called the tent of meeting, which eventually basically becomes the tabernacle. But in Exodus 33, you, you see him and that's, that's that language that he meets with God like a man meets with his friend. So you, when, when Moses then says a comment like, if you're not with us, then just let me die. If you're not going to be with us, then I don't have any reason to keep going. Well, maybe if you saw the glory of God, maybe you'd conclude that too. Once you've seen the glory of his presence, you realize it's the most essential thing in the whole world. So today we're going to look at uh, this, this uh, incredible moment uh, that, that, that changed. It changed the world. We we call it the incarnation. And it is when Jesus came to earth, when Jesus took on flesh. We read about it in John chapter 1. But it doesn't start off talking about Jesus. John says uh, he doesn't say the name Jesus at all. What is he he doing in these first 14 verses that you just heard read? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing with the first 14 verses. He He is setting off an alarm. You know, the majority of John's original re- audience was, was Jewish. And when they read these first 14 verses, it would be stunning to them. It would actually be scandalous to them. Their, uh, their radar would be going off. Uh, you see right off the bat, those first few verses, if you were to go and read Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, you, you would see a lot of correlation with John chapter 1 In Genesis chapter 1. Uh, he starts off the same way, in the beginning. And so there's an immediate trigger for a Jewish person who would know the Pentateuch well and who would hear those words and say, I've heard those words before. But then John does something different. He's associating Genesis 1 kind of language in the beginning. But then he goes on to offer ideas, some of which would be quite startling to the original Jewish readers. He says that in the beginning was the word. So he's giving this idea that the word was eternal, that the Word has been around. He goes on to say that the Word is God. That the Word just hasn't been around, but the Word is actually God. That the Word, the, the word is, is this deity. It's, this, it's got this supernatural reality to it. He goes on in verse 14, later down, a few verses down, he says that the Word became human. And that the word, the, the word dwelled among us, or dwelt among us. In this phrase, um, I mean, there's a lot I could say about the word being God and the word becoming human and the Jewish view of the material world and God taking on a body and becoming a human. That that stuff is scandalous stuff. That that would be hard to hear if you were a first century Jew. But this idea that that not only all that happened, but then he dwelt among us. The, the, The word dwelt among us. That is an intentional allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to talk more about this in just a second. But the tabernacle, which I just m- mentioned a moment ago, is kind of originally the, the tent of meeting is where Moses met with God. And then God gives instructions to build this, this portable building. And it was called the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle is referred to as the tent of meeting sometimes. But, but this, this image or this, this picture of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, it's this Old Testament idea. And it was understood by the Israel as this tent, it was this place where, where God dwelt, where, where the presence of God was, where his glory was. And when, uh, we'll talk more about this in just a second, what, what he's doing with the tabernacle, but when he says that God, that the, the word was God, became human, and then dwelt here, he, he's, he's, he's perking, like the, the attention of a Jewish person would be uh, honed into this. And then he goes on to say, and they saw his glory. Uh, the Greek word that is used for, for dwelt is, is the Greek word skino. And uh, it, it, it sounds like the Hebrew word that was used for God's glory, shekinah. Uh, there's, a, there's a term that the Jewish people use to try to, to, try to grab this big like undefinable idea of what, what is the presence of God? What, what is the glory of God? And Jewish writers use this Hebrew word Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. And the word Shekinah actually never shows up in the Hebrew Old Testament, in, in our Bibles. But it shows up in, in Jewish literature as they're trying to describe it. They're trying to figure out, how, how do we communicate the presence of God, the glory of God? And they, they had this word Shekinah, And then John comes along, and he uses the word skino. Now, you might think skino and Shekinah don't sound similar, but they have stems, the Greek stem and the Hebrew stem, and they have the identical consonants, S-K-N, that they relate to our English letters, S-K-N. And so John is is playing off of this word. He's using a word with the exact same consonants to indicate that this idea of Jesus' presence Brought with it glory. And then he goes on to overtly say it that, he, that, that, that this idea of, of the Word, it was God, became human, dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. It's this incredible statement of the significance of the Word coming to earth. John's not doing that on accident, he, he is doing that on purpose to make a point. Now I, I, I've already slipped up a couple times, but you might say the Word is eternal. It's divine. It became human. It dwelt here. It displayed this supernatural glory. But who is the Word? Because in, in the first verses of John, he doesn't tell us who the Word is, and that would be a very good question. If you were one of the original readers of John one, you might be walking through this and being like, oh, "Who is this? Who is this Word?" Who is this word that is God, that took on a human body, that dwelt here among us, who displayed this glory that we associate with the glory of the God of the universe? This Old Testament glory that's almost undefinable. Who is the word? Well, if you read through these verses in, chapter, in verses 6 through 13, he says that the word had a forerunner, that somebody showed up. And they started talking about this word. And they said that the word's on the way. That this this incredible thing, this this deity that's going to take on human flesh, that's going to live here and display this incredible glory, he's on the way. And this forerunner's name was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's job was to announce that the word is right behind him. That the word is coming and you better prepare yourself. You better prepare yourself for the reality of the word showing up. Well, if you read the rest of chapter one, you would find out who the word is. In the next few verses, the forerunner, John the Baptist, he says, here's the deal. I'm not the word. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one you should be looking to. I'm the one pointing to the guy. I'm the one pointing to the word. And at one point in time, later in chapter one, he actually says, behold, it's a command. He says, behold, behold. There's the Lamb of God. And he begins to associate the the, the one that I was running in front of, the one that I'm the forerunner for, the word, the one that I'm the, the predecessor, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word That John is talking about in these first verses. He's indicating that Jesus is eternal. He's indicating that Jesus is God. He's indicating that Jesus came and dwelled among us. And he uses a word that associates it with the glory of the Old Testament. With this Shekinah glory, the fact that God resided with his people in this unique way, in this little tent that traveled with them through the desert that they would set up and take down. And somehow, in some way, God met with Moses in this tent. And John wants to make all of those connections with the person of Jesus. John is saying that Jesus is the dwelling place of God. That's the point that John is trying to make, is that there's something going on within the person of Jesus, within this physical body that Jesus took on, that is unique in all the world. And it's that Jesus is the dwelling place of God. Now, the idea of the dwelling place of God being here, that well, that's, that's always been the plan. And if you were to survey the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you're going to find out that this actually bookends the Bible and it scatters itself all the way through all of the, uh, the chapters in the books. This idea of God's dwelling place, it's, it's something that can be traced throughout the Bible. So let's, let's do it and we'll try to do it quickly. But the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we see a location. We think of it where it's called the Garden of Eden. That's what we often refer to it as. And it's a space where divine space and human space are completely united. They completely overlap. And so we are told that God walked with Adam and Eve in intimate relationship. And what we realize is that Adam was given this role to to serve and to guard the garden, which is exactly what priests are going to be called to do in the temple in just a few books later in the Bible. Adam had that same role in the garden, this, this same recognition, this, this same priority of, of caring for it, guarding it, serving it. However, Adam and Eve, they, they fail on their duties. And they're expelled from that sacred garden temple. And this, this tragic moment in the history of the world, where this, this space, this, this garden, where d- divine space and human space were completely enmeshed. Now, humans were blocked from that space. There's intentional action by God to not allow humans back in there. And they, they lose that space where divine and human space overlapped. If you go further, we, the, the tabernacle that we've already talked about, that's the next uh, temple-like space. And it was commissioned by God in Exodus 25-27. through 27. He tells them exactly what he wants them to do, how he wants it to be built, how big he wants it to be, what parts he wants it to have. And it's, uh, in, you know, it's in line with the future temple, uh, a place where God would dwell. And it's a God-given design. And if you read what God has to say about the tabernacle, you're going to see garden imagery. That the way that the tabernacle was built reflected things about the Garden of Eden. And it's like God says, You're, I, know, I know you've been kicked out of the, the garden. I, I know that you don't have that kind of intimacy anymore. But when you come to the tabernacle or when you see the tabernacle, I want you to have some level of connection with, with what was. With, with that reality of, of human space and divine space completely enmeshed. And now here's this kind of pathetic portable tent that gets propped up in the desert. But I want the connections to happen for you. In this tent of meeting, it's little, comparatively, it's small. But in that tent, divine space and human space overlap. Well, as Israel settles into the promised land, uh, one of their kings named Solomon, he builds this glorious, this grand temple, and it replaces the tabernacle, and it becomes the place where God dwells. And if you were to read in 1 Kings 8, when they they, uh, dedicate the temple, it fills with smoke and fire. And the whole idea is that this Shekinah glory, this dwelling of God, is coming upon the temple in a really significant way. It's an indication that the temple now is going to function as the place where divine and human space overlap. Now, not everybody can go into the temple. But it it, it stands as an an image, as a a picture of what what God longs for. Human space and divine space to overlap. Well, what happens as Israel's history unfolds? Well, man, the temple becomes a train wreck. The the temple is corrupted. Uh, The people of Israel do exactly what they did in the desert. They progressively and continually, they, 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 they walk away from God. They, they get confused on what their relationship with God is. And maybe you can relate to that because that's part of our journey too. And, and they, they, they get all mangled up about what this temple even is. And they begin to focus way more on the physical building than the reality to which that building pointed to. And so they begin, in a sense, to start worshiping the temple instead of worshiping the God who dwelled in the temple. And the temple becomes this significant thing and they begin to treat it in this way that's almost like the temple is their God. And they think that just by doing these certain things in the temple, that that's sufficient. And so by the time, I mean, several of the prophets do this, but by the time Ezekiel comes around, he says, God's not even there anymore, guys. He's abandoned the temple. Just like the Garden of Eden. Like it's, it's not happening there anymore. It's closed down. What, the way you are treating it, you've, you've defiled it. You were supposed to serve it and guard it and protect it and recognize the significance, not of the concrete and the wood, but you were supposed to see the reality of what it was pointing to, the presence of God with his people. And Ezekiel says, it's over, man. He's not even there anymore. His dwelling place, man, it, it, the people defiled it. And he's abandoned it. By the time Jesus arrives, some sort of a temple structure has been in that part of Jerusalem for over a thousand years. But it hasn't gotten any better. It's a mess. And Jesus sees that temple and Jesus is not impressed. It's been rebuilt. There's a beautiful architectural glory to that building when Jesus is walking the earth. But he's not impressed. And he says some of the same things that the prophet said. He sees the temple building as a scandalous embarrassment. And he looks at it and says, no, one of one of Jesus's most aggressive acts in his in his earthly life was doing what? Walking into the temple, throwing over the tables, getting a whip and just cleaning house and saying this is a mess. This isn't what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Meaning, you're supposed to see what it's pointing to. You're supposed to be in communion with the God of heaven. This is where divine and human space was supposed to overlap. And you've just turned it into some market. What about Jesus? I mean, the literal temple building may have looked glorious, but it was insignificant because of the corruption there. The the temple's glory was only to the degree that it held the presence of God. God. And the defilement resulted in God abandoning that building. Well, when Jesus shows up, Jesus says something crazy. Jesus gives the indication that he's the real temple. If you just turn over one page in your Bible to John chapter 2, 19 through 21, you'll see. He looks at the temple and he says this. He's in a debate, in an argument. And he says, tear this building down and I'll tear the temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. It's, that's, that, that, those are fighting words. Those are like, you know, you should be killed kind of words. That's why they wanted to kill him. But he's not talking about a physical building. He's talking about himself. Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And Jesus is pointing to the same thing that John's pointing to here in these first 14 verses of his gospel. Jesus is saying, I'm the dwelling of God. I am the the space where divine and human space overlap. There's something unique about the person of Jesus. There's something unique about his presence in the world. He is the perfect overlap of divine and human space. Now, I said this is a four-week series, so some of these next things we'll be touching on in the weeks ahead. But if we kept going through the rest of the Bible, we would see that the way that the New Testament talks about the church There's language that the New Testament uses about the church and it talks about the church or the collective people of God as the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2. In other words, the church, the gathering of the people, when we get together like this, not just one of us by ourselves, but when we're here together, there's something unique about the divine space and the human space overlapping. And the New Testament doesn't want us to miss that. That there's something about the way that Jesus is present with his people when we gather as the church that puts on display this meshing, this this overlapping of divine and human space. The people of God, the New Testament says, is a way in which God dwells. And then individual Christians. On Pentecost Sunday, just two weeks from now, we'll, we'll spend our time talking about the coming of the Spirit. But the New Testament crystal clear says that every individual Christian is a temple. That that you have the presence of God in you. If you've come to faith in Christ then the Spirit of God dwells in you and the Bible is not, not, not at all hesitant to refer to you as a little temple. And then last, in the book of Revelation in the eternal kingdom, it's kind of shocking. In the last chapters of the Bible, It actually says there is no temple. And you would be like, wait, what? I thought this was the whole point that the temple was. Well, it actually is the whole point. Because what we find in Revelation 21 and 22 is that there is no temple because the presence of God fills the earth. And the whole thing is the temple. There's no literal temple. There's no physical temple because the earth is what it was supposed to be. A total overlapping of divine space and human space. And the dwelling of God is now with his people. And his people fill the earth. You know, God said to Adam and Eve before sin ever showed up, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to to, to fill the earth is what he said. You know, that's what happened with the birds and the fish and the trees. and the, they, they all multiplied. And God looked at Adam and Eve and said, I want you to do that. I want you to multiply. And as you do, you'll fill the earth with my presence. You'll fill the earth with my glory. But that's not what happened. Adam and Eve failed in their role. And they, in doing that, they, they excluded themselves from the presence of God. So in a way, you could see the Bible as an entire journey to getting to the place that God longed for in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. A complete enmeshing, a complete overlap of divine space and human space. Well, it might be clear to you or it might not be. But Jesus changed everything. While we just did the survey of the Bible and we got to Revelation 21 and 22 and we see that God's presence fills the whole earth... How is it that that happens? The the sin of Genesis 1 or of Genesis 3 resulted in the separation of God and man. The examples in the Old Testament of God's presence in the tabernacle and God's presence in the temple, it's so limited. There might be a sense of, of glory and grandness to it, but so limited. The Holy of Holies in the temple, like nobody got to go in there. What one person once a year? No, nobody had access to that. And so through the entire Old Testament, there's this recognition that the presence of God is not accessible to humanity. But see, that's why the gospel is so incredible. That's why after 400 years of silence, and then we get the gospels, we, we get the coming of Jesus in the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John As we just read in John chapter 1, when Jesus showed up, he took this this long developing idea of God's space and human space overlapping and he made it tangible. Jesus was, Jesus is the realest demonstration of divine space and human space intersecting, enmeshing, meeting. He brought the presence of God in a way that had never been experienced before. You think about that tent, think about the tabernacle, think about the temple, you know, buildings of wood, buildings of of, of stone. But now, with Jesus' arrival, it's it's a physical body. It's it's a human being. And a person who could actually speak, and a person who could actually listen. A person that could actually be touched, and a person who could actually touch you. And as the full and complete meshing of divinity and humanity, Jesus could also become the way to unite all humans to God. In John 14, when Jesus is talking about himself, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But you can come through me. I'm the way. I'm the way that that can happen. You can come to the Father through me. You see, on the cross, the full reality of who Jesus was was on display. The cross reveals that in Jesus, heaven and earth met. And they met in a cosmic way. They met in a violent way. And they are brought together. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the gospel tells us that he took all of our sin upon his shoulders so that we could be washed clean. That's the message of the gospel, is that Jesus went to the cross to pay the price of this sin that has infected the world. And the price tag for that sin is so much more than any of us would have ever guessed. And you might still say, I don't think the price of sin is that big. Okay, fine, but it is. Jesus in the garden says to God, he says to the Father, is there any other way to solve this problem? And do you know what the answer back to him is? no. There's no other way to solve the problem of sin. This is the only way. Jesus says, man, if there's a way for this cup to pass for me, could we do it that way? And the Father's answer is, there's no other way. This is the price tag. It's more than any of us can fathom. And yet Jesus goes to the cross to pay that price so that we could be washed, so that we could be clean, so we could actually stand in the presence of God unashamed. That in Christ we can be welcomed in to the presence of God. And one of the pieces of the evidence is that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, you know, he cries out a few different times. And at one point he cries out, it is finished. And you know, there in the temple was this curtain. And this curtain was feet thick. Not a curtain like we use on on a window or something. I mean, thick and tall. And on the, on the cross, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, you know that curtain that was the dividing between where humans could be and where God dwelt, that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom? Look, the point of that, it, no human did that. that. That is the power of the God-man that did that. And he tore that curtain down so that we could see that the only barrier, the only barrier between you and God, it's been removed. That the person and work of Jesus conquered the barrier, tore it down between you and God. Do you see the links that God has gone to, to restore his relationship with you? To, to allow his presence to be part of your story. And Jesus did all of that. And then the message is this. You want to be part of it. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is come. Your Jesus at one point in his life says, come to me, all of you who are tired, who have been trying to do this on your own. Maybe you've been trying to tear down the barrier all by yourself. Maybe you've been trying to build your own tower to God, your own ladder. You've been trying to figure out your own way to get to him. Jesus looks at you and says, you're, you're never going to be able to do that. You're, just, you're on a treadmill and you're going to exhaust yourself. But he does say, you've got to come. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me. You've got to come to me. But he's done the work. The work's done on your behalf. All you need to do is come. You know, have you seen his glory? That's, that's, that's what John says. He says that this is the story. That the word, Jesus, took on a human body. He's, he's the God-man. And he came and lived here. He, Pitched his tent and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And John, along with those other disciples and millions of people since, have had their lives completely turned around, completely blown up in the best possible way because they've seen the glory of Jesus, because they beheld his glory. You know, have you? Think of Moses in Exodus. If you're not with me, it is not worth living. You don't say that unless you've seen the glory that Jesus is putting on the table. Unless you see the reality of what Jesus has done for you. Now look, we don't right now get to see the physical body of Jesus. And I know, man, that that, that can feel like a challenge. It's like John says, you know, we've seen him. Well, John, you did see him. You, you know, apparently you laid on his chest at one point in time. Like, you touched him. You talked to him. You were with him. Maybe we think that that makes it easier. We don't get to see his physical body. John did. But you know what? We actually can see who he is and what he did just about as clearly as anyone in the history of the world. Our access to the the scriptures, to the storyline of Jesus... It is more accessible to us with more scholarship and what it means and how it applies to our life than anyone who's ever lived. Even the apostles, they didn't have all of it. They, 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 they They were still grasping. Peter at one point says the prophets, man, they wrote, but they didn't even know what they were talking about. They were led led by the Spirit to write these things, but they hadn't even fully processed it. Now we can sit here with the entire scriptures and we can consider the whole story, what has been, what is, what's coming. And we can see it quite clearly. And then let me close with this. You you know what John gives us as Jesus' second to last conversation? It's an interaction with one of of his disciples named Thomas. Thomas. And Jesus has showed up, talked to several of the other disciples, but, but Thomas was not there. And So Thomas comes back to the, to the fort, and Jesus is gone. And they're all like, Thomas, you missed it. The resurrected Jesus showed up. He, he, he was here. Like all the rumors, all the st- we saw him, like he was here. And Thomas is like, I don't think so. And they're like, no, he, he really was here. And Thomas is just like, I just can't believe you. I just, I don't believe you. Well, then Jesus shows up to Thomas. And uh, Jesus said to him, you know, what, what, what's going on? Do you, do you need to see the holes in my hand? Do you need to see the, the hole in my side? And then in chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, and Thomas says, my, my Lord, my God. That's Thomas's response. He's like, oh, my word, it is you. And Jesus's response to that is this. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, Peter put it this way. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You know, part of the reality of walking with Jesus is it's a faith walk. And Jesus looks at Thomas and he's like, I'm I'm glad you had the extra resource. But man, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Peter says, though you don't see him, you love him. You've grabbed onto this story and you've you've held it tight. And this is the invitation to consider the glory of Jesus and to hold tight. So as we head to the Lord's table, I want to invite you To consider the significance of the word becoming flesh, of the word dwelling among us, and in doing so, creating the one place where reconciliation between God and man could actually happen. So if you've seen his glory, in just a second, I'm going to invite you, go get the bread and the cup, celebrate the word becoming flesh. If you have never seen his glory, if you've never realized who he is, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus to be the one and only way to be reunited with God, then I would invite you to do that right now. There's prayers in the bulletin, but listen to these words that were read just a few minutes ago. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. He's so generous with that right, and he'll give it to you right today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text, and thank you for the, the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, Jesus dwelling here, Jesus walking this earth as the perfect overlap of divine space and human space, the God-man, the one who could make all things right. God, we thank you for the invitation that you give us so clearly to, to, to trust them, to put our hope there, to recognize that that, that that is the solution to our greatest problem. We thank you for the bread and for the cup. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.